Hello, Mountain. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. A special greeting to everybody gathered over at the Edgewood and Bel Air campuses. Um, I got to start by telling you guys that my week was a little bit of an uphill week. It began with surgery on a broken finger. I got a couple screws put in there. I want to go ahead and acknowledge this thing so it won't be a distraction. I have also, I have frozen themed straps, which um, I was offered different options. I said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go with frozen, make my daughters smile, you know, that'd be great. And only when she was like halfway done making them did I go, oh, I'm preaching this weekend. So it's going to be, but you know what, if this is a distraction for you, you're just going to have to let it go. Um, I, that's bad. That's great. I don't know. So I know that many of you probably have had a worse week than I have, actually. And um, sometimes people of faith were tempted to sort of say, you know, what's up with that? God, I'm trying. I'm giving you my life. And why isn't it supposed to get easier? And that's just not true. Jesus promised us very clearly an uphill life if we follow him. He said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He says it's uphill, but it's worth it. In Mark chapter 8, he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple needs to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you will save it. So we've been walking this uphill journey with Jesus. We started in the upper room, which is a place of friendship and community. And then we journeyed to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a place of surrender to God. And now we continue this week, and we wind up at a place of forgiveness, a place called Golgotha. Uh, you know, to forgive, that's the topic for today. To forgive is, and it just means to grant pardon or to cancel a debt. And our world is aching for forgiveness. It is such a need all around us. You know, sometimes I see it sort of by contrast. Does it seem to y'all like every other movie is just all about vengeance? And it drives me crazy because we know that that doesn't satisfy. And God has very clearly said long ago in Deuteronomy and repeated in, in Romans 12, God says, vengeance is mine. That's my deal. You guys don't do that. We see the need for forgiveness in the very palpable just anger that's all around us. We have, some, we have some good friends who have lived for decades now and served as missionaries over in England. And they were back for a while, for a few weeks recently, and someone asked them, you know, so what do you notice being back in America? And the first thing they said was just, well, everybody is just so angry all the time. That's, I've been thinking about that. You know, uh, we, we're in the middle of these political campaigns, and eventually... Somebody's going to be our next president. Somebody's going to get appointed to the Supreme Court. And a lot of people are going to need to forgive and ask for some forgiveness for some things they've done and said. And we're going to need to move forward and work together. God help us, please. We got racial tensions. We got religious tensions. I have neighbors, neighbors in my neighborhood with a good old-fashioned feud. They have not spoken to each other for years because some pine limbs got cut and fell on a certain side of a certain fence. You know, I bet in your home, in your neighborhood, your school, your office, even in our community here, there are some needs for some forgiveness. Can you sense this? Anybody got any bitterness that's maybe beginning to take root? Anybody holding any grudges? Anybody just tired of having to keep score all the time? Maybe you're the one who needs to forgive. 
cancel a debt or grant a pardon. Maybe you're the one who needs to seek some forgiveness to say you're sorry or own up to something. Maybe, if you're like me, there's probably some of both that needs to happen. And this is a key concept in the Bible and in our daily lives. And so on this topic, as on all topics, we are wise to turn to Jesus. He was well acquainted with this topic. We're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week in a very dark place, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends and followers. Immediately after that, he's deserted by all of his friends. At his hour of greatest need, they all got scared and ran away. And then he was dragged off up a hill to the house of Caiaphas, where all these big, important people ganged up on him and colluded against him. They brought forth a parade of false witnesses, and it says many testified falsely against him, even though their statements didn't agree with one another. They spat in his face. They punched him with fists. They slapped him in the face. They mocked him and verbally abused him. He was blindfolded and mocked and beaten some more. He was disowned, not once, not twice, but three times by Peter, one of his very closest friends. He claimed he didn't even know him. He was dragged off to stand before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He was accused some more. He was shouted down by a crowd of people who just days before had proclaimed him a king. Now they said, crucify him. He watched as Barabbas, this terrible, guilty criminal, was released while he, who was innocent, remained in chains. He was betrayed in a different way by Pilate, an authority figure who had the power to help him, but didn't. He was dragged off to another place called a praetorium, surrounded by soldiers who stripped him, mocked him, made a crown of thorns and jammed it onto his head. They spat on him. They struck his head again and again. They flogged him with the brutal cat of nine tails whip, which would have cut him to the bone. He lost so much blood. He was filthy, exhausted, up all night, weak, humiliated, and utterly alone. And then he was forced to carry his cross made of rough wood. A cross would have weighed about 300 pounds. He probably carried the cross beam, which weighed 100 pounds. All of this on the way to Golgotha, before he was, you know, nailed to a cross, stabbed with a spear, and stood up between two violent criminals so that they, he could just be mocked and slandered a little bit more before his dying breath. Now, I know... Some of us, some of you have experienced some of those things. Abuse, violence, mockery, abandonment, betrayal, false accusations, and more. I hope no one here has experienced all of those things, but Jesus did in a real place and time in history. And so now, having walked this dark and disturbing path with him over the last several hours of his life, we reach the top of the hill, and this hill is called Golgotha, a Greek word from an Aramaic word. The Latin version is Calvary, and it just means the place of the skull. Maybe due to rock formations that actually made it look like a giant skull. Maybe because of all the death and the bones and the dying. You know, in art it gets depicted, and we're just going to scroll through some images while I continue it gets depicted as this place that's just very dark. It, it, art in, often tends to capture the feel of a place of sorrow and suffering and pain and death, an actual physical place, but also maybe the place inside of us. What it feels like when we know we have done wrong and we're condemned to suffer for it. What it feels like to carry around 
the bitterness of unforgiveness. And now we have to remember that this winding up at this place is quite a plot twist. This is not what anyone would have expected. The people of Israel for many generations had been waiting for God to come and save them in the form of a Messiah or a Christ, this, this Savior King who would come and finally set things right again. Just a few days before, Jesus had entered the city to shouts of praise that he was this king. And yet here we are now at the climactic scene of this epic story of God and this world he created, but it doesn't take place in a palace. It doesn't take place in a beautiful garden. It doesn't take place in a city center. Instead, we find ourselves on the outskirts of town on a rocky hill in an ugly, blood-stained place where violent criminals were regularly executed. What a strange place. What a surprising place. What a scandalous place for God to choose as the backdrop for the forgiveness of the world. All right, I have a confession here. I'm a pastor, okay? I've been a pastor for many years. I've uh, studied this stuff a lot I've even traveled to Israel and literally walked some of the path that Jesus walked. But I've got to confess to you, every time I hear or read about or think about Golgotha or Calvary, the first thing that comes into my brain is Castle Grayskull from the He-Man cartoons that I watched as a kid. It, it was this ugly green-gray castle with a big skull on it. When I was a kid, my brother and I, we had the playset. It was really cool. It had a trap door. We had fun with that. But as I was studying and praying and kind of encountering these scriptures on our behalf in preparation for today, thinking about Golgotha, I kept thinking about He-Man and Castle Grayskull. And I remembered the words from the opening credits of He-Man. If you don't know He-Man or don't remember, check, check out the screen for a minute. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said... By the power of Grayskull! Alright, if you're new, just, just please stay with me. I promise this is going somewhere, okay? Um, when I was a kid, I would see that, and I, I, remember, I, I remembered this question this week. I remember being a little confused by that, because... Okay, he's, He-Man is the hero. His, his regular guy name is Prince Adam, okay? He lives in Eternia, and he's always doing good work trying to save and help and do good. He even has a cross on the front of his little uniform, okay? He's clearly the hero and the good guy. And yet, so why does he live there? Why is Castle Grayskull his home? I, I mean, I get it, why, the evil Skeletor, he had this ugly, you know, dark home. But why does, why does he live there? Why does he say, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power? I just didn't get that. Like, I, thought, I found that weird. Other shows and other things I would watch kind of had this clear, you know, light, dark, clean, dirty, good, bad thing going on between the good guys and the bad guys. And I, I never really got that, but I, I guess I just kind of put it aside. I didn't pursue this question as a, you know, seven-year-old or whatever. But it, 30 years later or whatever, it comes back into my head as I'm thinking about Golgotha. Golgotha is important, not in and of itself, but because of what happened there, because of the crucifixion. When we get to Golgotha, we zoom in on the cross of Jesus. And remember now, this was not originally a good symbol. It used to be the exact opposite. There's an old song that called it the emblem of suffering and shame. It's kind of like the logo 
of pain and punishment and fear and disgrace and death. In the ancient world, it was actually almost taboo. Sometimes you weren't even supposed to discuss or talk about the cross in decent company. By the way, that makes the thing that Jesus said earlier in Mark 8, long before the events that we've been looking at in this series, when he said, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross, that would have sounded really weird. I can imagine his disciples saying, wait, what did did he say? Did he just say, take up your cross and follow me? Why is he using this disgusting, crude metaphor? And they're like, I don't know, but look, he's doing another miracle. Like, we'll think about it later. Let's just keep going. You know, thousands of people suffered and died on crosses before and after Jesus. And yet somehow because of Jesus, the cross of all things, this death spike invented by barbarians on the outskirts of civilization, perfected by the Romans, the most vile instrument of torture and capital punishment maybe ever invented. Instead, it not only became okay to talk about it, it now became, the, it is the logo of Christianity. It is our main symbol. We hang decorative crosses in our homes. We have little gold ones we wear on our bodies. We emboss it and emblazon it on our Bibles and and books. We tattoo it on our skin. It's a torture device. Isn't that weird? Let's do a show of hands. Raise your hand if you have a cross on you somewhere in some form or fashion or displayed in your home in some way. All right? Isn't that that interesting? Anybody? All right, next next one. Uh, Guillotine. Anybody got a guillotine (laughs) on your mantle? Earring? What about an electric chair? Anybody got one of those? We don't, right? But with the cross, we're like, oh, yes, let's get a a nice pink one and put it over little Susie's bedroom door. That is weird. I want you to ponder that some more. How does that happen? If Jesus was a crazy person or an imposter or a liar, that doesn't happen. I I would even submit that if Jesus was a, a great man, a teacher, a prophet, a religious leader... That still doesn't happen. I think it only happens if Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And if, here's a little teaser for next week. If the thing that he, that we say happens on Easter, if he actually walked out of a grave, I think that's the only way this ends up happening. Early Christians had many symbols and many options for what could have become sort of the main symbol. It could have been a peacock, symbol of immortality, a dove, the victory palm branch of an athlete, the fish. The shepherd's staff, biblical things like Noah's Ark, Abraham and Isaac, Daniel and the lion's den, Jonah, baptism, a shepherd carrying a lamb, Lazarus being raised from the dead, the Cairo monogram, which was the first two letters in Greek for the word of Christ, uh, the name of Christ. Uh, Christians could have chosen a manger, a carpenter's bench, a fishing boat, a towel like the one Jesus used to wash his disciples' feet. They could have settled on a stone like the one rolled away from the tomb, a throne, a flame from heaven. But instead, the early Christians, many of whom died martyrs' deaths themselves, they couldn't stay away from. They were continually drawn back to the simple cross as the unifying, central symbol, the logo of the Christian faith. I just find that weird. And I find it weird and strange that the cross of Golgotha became the dominant symbol for the Christian faith. I find that weird in the same way that I once found, you know, He-Man living and doing good by the power of Grayskull. Weird and strange. It doesn't seem right. But then, you know, God sort of is connecting these dots and he, he pointed me toward 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul writing to a local church community uh, back in the day, and, and they had all kinds of drama, all kinds of sin issues going on. 
And this is what he said. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. This, this means some people are going to want signs and miracles and proof in order to believe, begin to trust God. Others look for ultimate wisdom and knowledge, the ultimate truth in things like wisdom and knowledge. They want to kind of rationally parse out everything or scientifically prove everything before taking steps of faith. And that's still very true today, right? But Paul says, not us. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, foolishness to Gentiles, to those, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, when God found you. When you woke up to your need for God, maybe that day is today. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, our forgiveness. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I don't know, y'all. Maybe it was the pain meds kicking in a little bit earlier this week. But God pointed me back there and connected some dots for me that stemmed all the way back to when I was watching He-Man cartoons in my underoos in the 80s. He-Man, one of my childhood heroes, he used to say, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power to help and save and fight and defeat evil. Sounded a lot like what Paul was saying to the early Christians in Corinth and a bunch of other places where faith in Jesus, the crucified one, took root against all odds and spread all over the world. By the power of the cross of Golgotha, Jesus, the second Adam, the real true man, the hero of the story, truly does have the power to defeat sin and death and bring righteousness, holiness, redemption, forgiveness to our lives. Now, here's a disclaimer. I don't know if that's what the makers of He-Man were really trying to say, nor do I really care. Please do not go research this and write me like, uh, actually, you know, the creators of He-Man were uh, atheists and devil worshippers who sought to mock the gospel. One, I just don't, I don't want to know. Let me just kind of have that from my childhood, please. And two, I don't care because it's not the point. Please do not miss my point. What I'm saying today is this. The point is all, good, all truth is God's truth, and I am very certain of what Paul is saying in this letter. It's, it's something that's surprising. It's strange. It's shocking. It's scandalous. It's counterintuitive and very bold. He's saying that the center and the core and the very heart of our message as followers of Jesus 
the key event in the story, the hinge point of all history, was what happened on two blood-soaked wooden beams on a dark day on a rocky hill of death known as the place of the skull. Yes, we preach by our words and our deeds and the way we live. We preach Christ the Christmas baby, Christ the friend, Christ the leader, the provider, the shepherd, Christ the peacemaker, Christ the worker of miracles, Christ the risen Lord, and on and on. But none of it makes sense. None of it truly has power to change our lives unless we first and foremost preach Christ the crucified one. Because that is the moment of clarity for us. That is where we are able to truly distinguish between foolishness and wisdom, between the other voices of this world and the voice of the one true God. The, cro- the cross is where it all comes together, like X marks the spot. Heaven and earth. God in his holiness and justice and God in his love and grace. God with us and God so far above us and beyond us. It all converges on the cross. And the cross is absolutely central and essential for us even when it seems like nonsense to the rest of the world. Did you know that pretty much everybody everywhere likes Jesus? You know, people will curse and mock Christians, the church, the Bible, whatever, but it is very, very rare to hear anyone talk bad about Jesus himself. But many people do not want Jesus to come with a cross. You know, Islam speaks very highly of Jesus, but rejects the cross declaring it inappropriate that a major prophet of God should come to such a dishonorable end. The Quran sees no need for the sin-bearing death of a savior. Judaism, you know, Jews at the end of the day just cannot come to believe that this man who would die this way is the Messiah. They are still waiting on a political, military conqueror, the the Messiah and and the Savior to come. Hindus, though they can accept the historical fact of the crucifixion of Jesus... They reject its saving significance. Gandhi, for example, wrote, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. So many other thinkers and leaders and philosophers have ultimately rejected Christianity because of the weakness and or the barbarism that they see displayed in the cross. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, throughout the New Testament, throughout the teachings of the church ever since, we find this message. It is the cross of Jesus that is the key image for us. The very best symbol for the love and grace and sacrifice and forgiveness, and ironically and mysteriously and counterintuitively also for the power and the love of God. In other words, hey, y'all can look for meaning and purpose wherever you want. Good luck with that. But we, followers of Jesus, having walked up the hill with him and dared to stand on Skull Hill and to weigh out the cosmic and the personal significance of what happened there, we choose to preach Christ crucified. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than than human strength. All right, I am so excited about next weekend, not only because it's four more days of NCAA tournament basketball games, but 
even more so because of this thing called Love Does, okay? We're, we're launching a new series. We have all kinds of great Easter services coming. Check out this beautiful logo. Isn't that happy and beautiful? Balloons. Uh, Easter's great. You get, you know, if you want to, a lot of people like to get dressed up, wear your pastels and wear your big hat, whatever. You know what? Or don't. Come, as always at Mountain, come in your PJs, come in your jeans. It's all good. Just come. You know, do the eggs, do the baskets, do the bunnies if you want or not. Some people don't want to do that stuff. That's great. Fine. But do not miss the point of it all. The party is about Resurrection Day. And I so am looking forward to that and, all, and the weeks to come after it. But first, before we get there, right now, I want to pause just a few more minutes here at Golgotha. And I want to change one little letter there because before love does anything of significance, we believe that love dies. Golgotha teaches us that if love is really going to do anything that matters, if we are going to live out love, then ironically and tragically, often the first thing that we must do is to sacrifice, to put others first, to take the hit, to suffer The cross reminds us, I'm going to give you four truths that we need to see as we stand and look at the cross. Draw them in your notes, draw them as the four points of the cross. On Golgotha 1, we notice that our sin is grotesque. The cross reveals just how disgusting our sins are. When we look at the cross, we not only see the betrayal of Peter and Judas, the the jealousy and the scheming of the religious leaders, the wishy-washy self-preservation of Pilate, the cruelty of the failing systems of justice and punishment, the darkness of the mocking crowds, but we also see all those same things in ourselves. The cross becomes a mirror for us, and what we see is not pretty. The cross says that we really do need to be forgiven. And our, you know, our culture does not like to talk about sin anymore, but that does not make it any less real. And the first thing we're forced to acknowledge on Golgotha is that if Jesus would submit himself willingly to this, and if God would allow it to happen, then there has to be a, a very good reason. And the reason is our own sin and rebellion, which must be dealt with by a holy and just God. And so step one And maybe this is where you're at in your journey right now, is to just focus on that. Pray to God that if if all this is true, that he will convict you and convince you of of the gravity of your sin against him. Number two, God's love, if I may borrow this word, is ginormous. God's love is huge. For, For God to choose to make a way at such painful cost to himself shows us that his love is just wonderful, almost beyond comprehension. God could have very justly abandoned us to our fate, but he did not. Because he loves us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the cross, and he bore our sin and our guilt and our judgment and death. It, would t- it takes such a very hard heart not to see the great love of God on the cross. It's more than love. It's grace. It's love for the undeserving. So maybe your next step is right there. Ponder the huge love of God and acknowledge it for the first time maybe as real and as for you. Number three, forgiveness is a gift. This is not something we could ever earn. He has purchased our pardon. There is nothing left to pay. Paul didn't write to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified and 14 other things that we have to do to earn our forgiveness. No. 
Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he just says our job is to believe, to actively trust in him, to accept that gift. Other religions ultimately end up being about a list of things to do to get right with God. But the difference in the Christian faith is that it's about something that is done. It's done. It's a free gift. And so maybe it's time you accepted that gift. And then number four, Jesus, the suffering Lord, is our guide. I want to say, if someday, years from now, or later today, you go home and you're get, getting cloudy on all this, just remember, Jesus Christ crucified equals the power of God. You know, if this all gets confusing or, or crazy, just drop what you're doing, lace up your shoes, and walk back uphill and stand once again on Skull Hill at the foot of the cross. Because ultimately, this is very intensely personal stuff we're talking about here. I want to end today by talking, telling you about two guys who, who themselves had very personal, life-changing experiences with Jesus on Golgotha. The first guy, imagine with me, he had led a rough life. You know, I think his family, and I, family life was probably not great, but even when it was, he didn't appreciate it. He wasted it. He was rebellious and arrogant. That gradually led him to a more and more lonely and desperate place in that culture. He began to commit crimes. He turned sort of to a life of crime. His crimes got more and more violent. One day he crossed a line, and he escaped the law for a little while, but soon was caught and found himself condemned to die. And as his clock was running out, there he was hanging on a cross next to two other men. One of those men happened to be this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he had followed the story of Jesus. It was impossible not to. Some said he was a healer. Some said he was a prophet of God. Many even believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah of God. But you know, the tide had quickly turned and the powers that be had once again succeeded in snuffing out another rival. There were, the other criminal hanging there with them joined the crowd in their mockery of Jesus. But he did not. He, he had followed the story and watched Jesus throughout the horrors of this day and he knew that this man was innocent of those crimes. He was totally compelled, deeply moved by the way that Jesus never retaliated. His demeanor was not of this world. There was power in it. And so when the other criminal looked at Jesus and said, aren't you the Messiah? Why don't you save yourself and save us? This guy spoke up and he said, you shut up. He said, don't you know who you're talking to? You and I, we're getting exactly what we deserve here. But not him. He is innocent. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, looking back at him in his eyes, he received his faith. And he said, so be it. I will see you later today when you are with me in paradise. That's a gospel story right there. That is good news. A man who had screwed up his whole life. He left behind him a pain of, a trail of pain and destruction. Ruined everything he touched, maybe. And yet, the very last minute, he didn't even have the option to sign up for the next baptism splash or welcome to mountain class. Although, if he had had it, I know he would have. He placed his faith in Jesus hanging on that cross, and he was forgiven, and he was saved. Maybe that story is something like your story. 
maybe that thief on the cross will remind you today and in future days that forgiveness can be yours if you will just turn to Jesus. And then there's this second guy who was very different from the first guy. His life in many ways had been a great success. He lived on the right side of the law. He, he actually was the law. He was a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, uh, overseeing a hundred men. When he spoke, people listened. He had land and savings, a wife and kids, influence and security. And yet he still felt unsatisfied inside. At first he had been wowed by the grandeur of the Roman Empire until he began to see its dark underbelly. Now the honeymoon was over. You know, he knew enough now to know that Caesar was no deity. Turns out that the great Roman peace was just maintained by just brutally crushing even the smallest sign of any rebellion. And this young soldier who had got into the business to serve and protect and spread knowledge and peace and prosperity too often now instead found himself overseeing yet another round of crucifixions. And sure, these were criminals. They knew the laws and what, what would happen. Except for this guy, Jesus was different. He appeared pretty clearly to be innocent or at least not deserving of this. But you know, orders were orders. And so even as he was beaten, this guy watched Jesus show no violence in return. Even as he was mocked and slandered, Jesus held his tongue, and when he finally did speak, he cried out these amazing words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the Bible simply says that this Roman centurion who stood right there on Golgotha watching and overseeing this whole thing, when he saw how Jesus died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. That is another gospel story. That's good news. A man who had it all, so he thought, and yet he realized seeing Jesus, in comparison to what Jesus had, he had nothing. He wanted that power and that humility and that love that he saw displayed. He didn't even really know exactly what it meant yet, but he put his faith in Jesus. We don't know the rest of this guy's story. I I like to think he, he followed through. After the resurrection, he found the disciples... He said, I'm all in. He, you know, I see this guy as like the, the first century Rob Arsenault, okay? He, he moved back to Rome. He, he opened a pizza shop and started a men's ministry at his church. Started Centurions for Christ or something like that. Maybe this story is a lot like yours. Maybe you've been successful by the world's standards. Maybe you got everybody fooled, but you know there's something missing in your life. And in, in, in the light of Jesus... You see that and you want that. And it begins just by acknowledging that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and you can do that. And those are just two stories. There are so many more. And they carry on to this day. I get a front row seat to see them in this community. Many of you wrote me this week about some of them. Forgiveness, families, friends, former enemies, working it out, burying the, burying the hatchet, working through things, getting counseling. We have a group, a new group I wanted to mention called Regret to Recovery for women who've been through an abortion who want to deal with the, the issues of guilt and shame and, and, and work through that in a Christ-centered way. Just seeing you and me just forgive ourselves and accept God's forgiveness over and over again in our own lives, it's beautiful. And as we acknowledge our sin before a holy God, and accept the forgiveness of a loving God, we gain that peace that comes with that. But something more happens. 
It's, this is amazing. The forgiven ones, then we get to become forgivers of others. And then, as we pass this great gift along to the world around us, we begin to see change, and it becomes fuel for us to reach out in relationship, to serve the world. We begin to get glimpses of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we are all about, and always will be about. This is why the cross of Jesus, like it or not, is our emblem and our logo and our central symbol and always will be until Christ returns one day in total victory. There will be no rebranding initiative. We will preach Christ crucified. This is why Golgotha is, as one of my professors used to say, and will always be for us, a good, bad place. The cross is a good, bad thing. It's ugly, yes. It's dark, yes. It's painful, yes. But it is also strangely beautiful and central in importance to our story. It necessarily sets the stage for the very, very awesome event that comes next. And once again, I want to highly encourage you to come back next weekend to hear about and to celebrate what comes next. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for rescuing us. Thank you for taking away our sin and disgrace. Thank you that because of Jesus Christ, the crucified one, we are forgiven. It's in his name we pray. Amen.